Hi, and welcome to This Full Life, a platform dedicated to inspirational conversation, courageous individuals, and my desire to learn more about the world I live in. I'm Tara Davis. Hi, and welcome to This Full Life. I'm so excited to have you joining me today. I have a fantastic topic and a fantastic guest. Delara Marchbank is joining me today. She is one of my fantastic yoga teachers. We are going to talk today on gender bias, racial bias. But before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Delara. She is a certified yoga instructor, transformational teacher, artist, community builder, mother. Delara is passionate about translating spirituality into everyday practices. She has spent the last 20 plus years fulfilling her dharma as a teacher in various settings from elementary schools, living rooms, yoga studios, corporate conference rooms. She enjoys conveying her knowledge, experience, and skills to students of all ages. More than 15 years ago, Delara began practicing yoga as a way to relieve stress. She soon realized how yoga increases vitality and creates greater capacity for facing life's challenges with grace and ease. Yoga and meditation are a part, a regular part of Delara's life, and as a natural extension of her practice, she began teaching in 2008. In addition to her years of training and experience as a yoga teacher, she is certified in Yoga Nidra, a powerfully restorative and transformational practice that is the centerpiece of her teaching. Her yoga classes have taken her through conscious communication workshops, wellness retreats, and have landed her in eight different states with all of her knowledge. So we're going to start with, well, actually, let me just preface it. We're going to talk about school bias, uh, the preference for white history rather than other voices of color. We're going to talk about white privilege and unpacking what this really means, um, how it's ironically not about white people, And I love that we're going to talk about this because you and I have just really touched the surface on what I know on this topic. Um, We're also going to talk about how we can use this privilege towards social justice. So I want to start with the school bias because I recognized it as well with my kids, but I had no idea where to start. And so first of all, tell us a little bit of your background and why you even decided to, or what even triggered you to realize there is such a bias in our school system. Sure. You know, as with many things in life, until we are in a position to really experience something firsthand, we don't really know. We can't really speak to it. Yeah. Mm. Um, and uh, we might think we know, we might have read something in a book, we have, might have an idea about something, but it's not the same thing as experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, as an elementary school teacher for, for several years after I completed college, um, I, you know, my education as a teacher 
was uh, at a liberal arts school, a very liberal liberal arts school, and um, a lot of the emphasis in our curriculum in becoming teachers was breaking open the boxes, you know, thinking about assessment differently than just grades on a piece of paper, thinking about um, the curriculum that we developed and what we want to teach in a way that was different than just okay, sit down and let me read this for you out of a book. And, you know, this is, this is a long time ago. So, you know, obviously, you know, as that has been translated into the public school system, into private schools, into charter schools, over the years, there have been shifts and movements and, and this and that. Where I first became aware of how um, inequity or in, uh, inequality might be playing out in my own children's school is just in looking at the school and looking at the population that attends the school and thinking about it in relation to our overall population in Westminster, Colorado. Um, those who have experienced Colorado as this beautiful natural state, you know, we enjoy it. Mm. When you look at the population composition, it's, it skews fairly white, mm. a lot. <laughs> and somebody who grew up in the Chicago area moving here and having had a lot of very culturally diverse experiences in my own life, it was very shocking to me, you know, to the point where for the first couple of years living here, um, I try to be really positive. And we love, I mean, we love Colorado. We love living here. I don't ever want to have to move if we don't have to move. Um, you know, in, in sharing that with friends who would be like, so how do you like it? You know, I'd say, oh, we just, we love it. We can be outside all the time. Da, da, da. But, you know, there was always this huge but, which was like my experience in, with the people here is that they're wonderful. It's just very different from mm -hmm. what I'm used to. Mm -hmm. And it feels uncomfortable for me almost in a way. Now, I should explain for those who can't see what I look like at the moment. You know, I, um, how I am identified by others and how I identify myself in the world in terms of culture and skin color and all of that is rather complicated. Um, in terms of... Um, cultural or genetic heritage, both of my parents are from Iran, and that's a Middle Eastern country, a lot of brown people. <laughs> um, and uh, they, they came to the United States um, when they were quite young, in their, in their 20s, and you know, established themselves here, but I was born here in the States. And um, for various reasons, my dad didn't really want me to learn Persian growing up because he didn't really want me to have an accent. And, we, you know, we can get into that in another conversation about, you know, sort of the way in which um, the immigrant experience coming to a country like America is very much about trying to be white or trying to be what is perceived oh, as white. Because mm. there is the deep recognition the minute your foot steps on ground here that whites have the power. And, I can imagine. Right? And so if you don't, you know, when you're coming from a country like Iran, so I should also say that religiously our background is as Baha'is. Um, Baha'is in Iran are a persecuted minority. So they're imprisoned, they're tortured sometimes, they're executed, and this has happened for decades. Um, so coming from an environment where, you know, like my mom has shared with me that she can remember walking to elementary school and kids throwing stones at her, you know? Wow. Um, so coming Because from, she was going to be educated. Because she was going to be educated as a woman, as a woman and, right. as a, and as a Baha'i. More importantly, yeah. yeah, just sends shivers down my spine too. Mm. I can't, I can't imagine that for my own kids. <laughs> so you know, so so that's a little bit of my background. So in terms of how you know what my experience has been in in America, this is the only nationality I have. It's mm -hmm. you know the only place where I've ever lived long term, um, and I think because of my upbringing on many levels, for the most part, I think the world identifies me as white. 
Right. Especially now in my adult Because your skin is yeah. a beautiful, creamy, yeah. caramel like, color. Right, right. Right. So I would look at you and think, oh, maybe you have a suntan or maybe you have right. a little bit of somebody else's background. And, <laughs> exactly. And I wouldn't give it a second thought. Exactly. And so, you know, when I was a kid, my skin was much darker and um, it was much more obvious that I wasn't like the kids around me in my school, How did in my elementary it? school. It, it felt um, really strange and kids teased me and they called me names and, you know, all of that. And still, I mean, so here's what I want to say about like all of that. That's my experience as an individual. It doesn't come close to, that's like a drop in the ocean of what my black friends go through, of what my um, immigrant Mexican friends go through, of what even my Chinese friends go through, you know? So um, it, it, it is to say that for me, race, identity, skin color, culture, it's all very complex. And, um, and, and I recognize that I have a privilege in that. Mm -hmm. Because I can move among various circles. Sometimes that's called code switching. So I can code switch when I need to. Never heard of it. Yeah. So like if I'm hanging around with you, like we can kick it and talk about yoga stuff and deep conversation and stuff like that. And then if I'm hanging around a different group of people, that's like all about, um, oh, I don't know. (laughs) You and I have so many things in common. I have a hard time visualizing something other than... (laughs) What we would be able to talk about. Yeah. If, I, if I'm, you know, let's say I'm hanging around with my extended family on my mom's or dad's side, mm. cousins and so forth, some of whom only speak Persian and don't speak English. And, you know, then I can sort of blend in a little bit there mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. But it's always very obvious that I'm not one of them because I don't speak, speak fluently. Because you're the white person in the family. Kind of, yeah, yeah. you know. And then, um, uh, you know, in, in other circumstances, again, I feel very different. Like if I'm hanging around with my African-American friends and there's an experience that they have in this world mm-hmm. that they cannot turn off. Mm-hmm. And that is essentially the definition of white privilege. Mm-hmm. So getting into that a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. white privilege is not something about being white necessarily. It has nothing to do with the color of your skin. It's about the fact that there is a power structure in place and has been for generations mm-hmm that affords certain people the luxury of never having to think about what they look like in terms of how they are treated by others. But for another part of the population, it is, it is inescapable to know that how you look and are perceived by others determines how you are treated. That is essentially white privilege. It makes me so emotional because yeah. as you talk about it, it really hits me deep that that has been my life, mm. fortunately and unfortunately, mm. that I have lived that life and experienced that life, that I have empathy mm. for everything that you were speaking of, mm-hmm. but I have no direct connection yeah. with that piece. And so I think what makes me so emotional is for everyone else's experience. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, Unfortunately, mm-hmm. for their unfortunate experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, quick pop culture reference, and then we'll come back. We'll get we'll, we'll swing back around to this, the whole school situation eventually. That was sort of a very roundabout <laughs> way of explaining why how I noticed it in the school uh, at the Golden Globes uh, award ceremony. I, I will admit it's a it's a very guilty pleasure. I love award shows. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> and I you know in watching the Golden Globes the other night, there was um, an award. Uh, sort of like an honorary award, Cecil, Bill, Cecil, Cecil B. DeMille Award, excuse me, that was awarded to Oprah Winfrey. Oh, uh-huh. And um, 
the acceptance, gratitude speech that she offered in receiving this um, honor was so, I mean, I was just I had tears pouring down my face as I was listening to her. Right, my she husband, to do that. My husband came in the room at some point and was like, are you okay? <laughs> like, I, pr- I promise I am. You know, and, and basically what she shared in a nutshell, and this is like, mm. I'm not doing, please go to YouTube, watch the video. You know, it's very easy to find. Just Google Oprah Winfrey, Golden Globes uh, speech. Um, you know, what she shared was that as a child, as a black child mm-hmm. growing up in Milwaukee, one of the most powerfully defining moments for her was watching Sidney Poitier receive an award at, you know, a ceremony years before. Mm-hmm. I think it was also a Golden Globe uh, ceremony. Um, and how it signaled to her hope, you know, mm-hmm. that if this African-American man, this black man, can be honored in this way, then there's hope you know, mm-hmm. for, for her, for others. And in her speech was basically saying the same thing to any little girls that might be watching this in, in light of everything that's happening in our world right now, mm-hmm. racially, in terms of the equality between men and women, in terms of um, educational inequities, you know, all of these things, um, that there's hope, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's, there's still hope out there. And it's powerful. I bring that up because it's powerful to see somebody like you um, being treated in a way that you may not be familiar with, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I think about, for example, um, uh, you know, a young African-American girl who might be teased all the time at school or even bullied or whatever, simply because she is a black girl, um, watching Oprah, you know, offering this hope, offering this, this vision, even just seeing her, even if she didn't hear anything that she was saying, you Mm -hmm. know, even just seeing her on that television screen, it screen, it gives validation. Mm -hmm. And so this comes back around to the school situation. Colorado's very white. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. And let's just kind of tangent. There is nothing wrong with being white in the world (laughs) in terms of the color of your skin. Mm -hmm. Um, Westminster is also very white. It's the town that we live in. So it's a it's an it's a wonderful town and there's great you know great stuff happening, and but the school where my kids go, which is a public school or neighborhood school, um, does not have the same cultural demographic breakdown as wider Westminster. Wider Westminster has a much smaller percentage of non-whites mm-hmm. than their school does. So their school has a higher percentage in terms of the student population of non-white kids. Yet there is not one person of color on staff. There is not one person of color in the administration, not even on the custodial staff. And I say that because sometimes, you know, at least you have <laughs> the lunch lady or, you know, mm-hmm. somebody, you know, who you're, you can connect to, not one. And there are, there, and granted, there are a few people on staff who um, are Hispanic by background. Um, it's not visible, though. Mm-hmm. And so, again, there's this, you know. It's a subliminal message. There, it's a subliminal message. So. Mm-hmm. You know, for, I, I see my son's um, African-American friend, uh, I won't say her name, but, you know, so I see her and she's sweet and, you know, like we hang out and, and, but, and I think of her, I think of her because I think of the fact that she comes to the school every day and she does not see anyone in authority who looks like her. Mm-hmm. So where does she learn that she's allowed to go for that? Right. Where it's a role model. Where is her role model? Other than her, you know, her, her family. Mm-hmm. Where's her role model? Where, where is the validation of 
who she is in the world around her that says that she's beautiful. Where's, yeah, where's her connection every day, all day? Because yeah. she's there. Yeah. All day, every day. Yeah. Five days. That kind of bias in the way that hiring is done at the school district level and applications are taken at the school district level, how teachers are tenured, um, all of these, it's not going to shift until we shift it. How long have you had your children? We're two children who were placed with us who um, were about to be... Um, <laughs> and they're not even babies. Right. No, yes. They were, they were five and six when we met them. Together, spend some time with the kids. Um, lovingly took them into our home. We finalized our adoption last February. This February will make one year that they've been adopted with us, but they've been with us, living with us for about a year and a half now. And um, it's, I mean, that's a whole other, it's a whole other world of things to talk about, but it's been such an interesting journey for me, um, having had so many preconceived ideas about what I might be like as a mother, what it means to be a mother, you know, how one becomes a mother, all of these things, and really all of it got thrown out the window. Yet, how these kids fit in with our life, how we fit in for them, what we are for them, um, and what they are for us is perfect. It is just a perfect alignment of all the issues that I've been through in my life, all the issues that my husband's been through in his life. Um, they all come to bear in what we're able to give to these kids like very specifically it's it's really it's bizarre and it's wonderful and frightening and stressful <laughs> and mostly awesome <laughs> and it's so interesting because motherhood again a whole other topic that we yeah. could dive into <laughs> but you know when you're when you aren't a mother and my ch two of my three children are grown and out of the house and I just have one left but even still the mom that I am I my judgmental mind will take over sometimes mm -hmm. when you see it. And especially if you have never been a mom, you're just thinking, mm -hmm. well, why aren't you? Or why do you? Or, and then you have them and you're like, yeah. Holy oh, shit. I get it. <laughs> I get it. Now. Excuse me. Right. Yeah. It's such an incredibly different dynamic than one could ever anticipate. And to have them already five and six, you said, yeah, they're not babies, so you no. didn't. The, the four of you didn't get to grow together. Yeah. They are grown. They have their own set of beliefs, mm -hmm. good or bad. Mm -hmm. They have their own personalities are set, mm -hmm. and now you have them, and now you yeah. have them into a school yeah. that you agree with and you don't agree with. Right? Yeah. You know, the administration at the school, the teachers that the kids have had, wonderful, you, like awesome people, quality education. Um, I have no qualms with that whatsoever. Um, you know, but when I walk into one of the kids' classrooms and there's a little strip, you know, up above the, the smart board, like, you know, the, the newer version of a blackboard, right? <laughs> the, you know, the smart board um, uh, that's, that's called the History of the United States. And the only, aside from in the very first little, like, piece, you know, all the way in, in, to the left that talks about how Native American cultures were here in, in the Americas for centuries and complex and diverse and da-da-da. Like, aside from that, everything from that point forward is all the history of the settlers and the colonization of America. And um, it's basically like the white people's history of America. Well, okay. We'll just stop. She can edit this out. Yeah. Sorry. That's I don't okay. want that meowing to continue. Yeah. Because they'll hear it in a well. Okay, continuing with the timeline. Yeah. So 
you know, it gave me pause because it gave it it what it um, what it made me realize was that um, I want more for my kids than that. You know? Yeah. Not just because they are also people of color. Their background yeah. is partly, uh, as far as we know, we haven't done like a you know you only know what you know right. <laughs> when you adopt kids, but. Um, they seem to come from some Hispanic, Mexican, most likely Mexican background. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we speak Spanish at home. We speak English at home. Um, you know, I, I want them to have some exposure to their cultural heritage and also the cultures of all of the people in the world. Right. So what they're being taught is my history. Yeah. Because I'm pretty much white. Yeah. 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 So they're being taught my history. Yeah. They're not being taught your history, nor are they being taught their history. Right. And the reality is that America as a country, no matter what your politics, no matter what your religion or not religion, no matter what your, no matter who you are in the world today, the reality is Mm. that America was built on the backs of human beings that were exploited, Mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. There's no way around that. I mean, there's just, there's no way that you can, let me think about like, make it very simple. Uh, You moved into this home. There were people who lived here before, but they moved out before you came here. Mm -hmm. So it was an empty home. Mm -hmm. America is like those people were still here. And in order for you to move in, you had to kill all of them and and throw them out. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I don't mean to make, right. I don't mean to make light of it. I don't mean to laugh, but it's, it's that simple. There's, there's no, you know, or to shove them into like 10 square acres of property and call it a reservation or Mm. there's there's a there's a history of um, a colonial mindset that has affected Native Americans that has affected um, all of the African Americans brought over as slaves not brought over as free people not traveled over here because they were wanted to settle America as well and were brought over here against their will and this is part of our history you know Mm -hmm. and it hurts to talk about it Again, this is that whole thing of white privilege. Um, white privilege is not having it feel painful to talk about your heritage. Mm-hmm. That's a privilege in life. Um, my African-American friends don't have that privilege. Right. My Native American friends don't have that privilege. They have ancestors who were raped and slaughtered. They have ancestors who were holed up in the bottom of a, a, a boat coming over the ocean, you know. And, and, you know, again, me as, as a child of an immigrant family, maybe, maybe a drop of what we've experienced, or what we've experienced is like a drop of that, maybe. <laughs> but it's it's just not the same. It's just not No, and same. I just, you know, the image that you just conjured up for me is so shameful. Yeah. Shameful that, I mean, it is what it is. It's, it's yeah. already happened. Yeah. But shameful that because of the color of your skin and your heritage, your background, you're hiding in the bottom of a boat to seek to seek out refuge or the prospect of a new life because of the color of your skin. Something that's very arbitrary and quite frankly, you know, what we know scientifically and genetically is that we all had pretty dark skin at some point. Right. And it's really the lighter <clears throat> skin colors that were evolutionary adaptations based on where early human beings traveled in the world, you know, Mm -hmm. we didn't start that way. So that's, I mean, that's just something to kind of chew on and get over. So here's the thing, you know, I think, and I want to just kind of back up and say, Mm -hmm. 
I am not an expert on racism. I'm not an expert on social justice. I'm not, I'm just somebody in the world who cares deeply about the happiness and well-being of every human being and especially those whose lives touch mine. Mm -hmm. And, um, and as somebody, you know, who's had different kinds of experiences in the world, I want, I want to sort of use whatever privilege I am perceived to have mm -hmm. toward making a change, toward making it right, so to speak, you know? And I just think that the conversation that we're having today yeah. is an eye-opener. Yeah. Because you have said so many things that already have triggered me. I think, I don't, I don't perceive my world, that I have not perceived my world that way. I have not, like I know all this information. The information kind of floats yeah. in the background. Yeah. But I don't bring it forward <clears throat> and put all the pieces together in the puzzle and then think, wow. Mm -hmm. Because, like you said, we do live in a very white area. Mm -hmm. um, traveling, when we travel, when we were living you know, in Central and South America for a while, it was so awesome from the perspective that we were the minority every single right. place that we traveled. Right. So it gave us that perspective that we weren't used to having. <clears throat> and interestingly enough, in a little bitty section in Peru, I don't think very many travelers were there. White travelers mm -hmm. um, perceived, I say white because it was either European or from America. Mm -hmm. um, and my children have light brown, somewhat blonde hair. Mm -hmm. And we're white. Mm -hmm. And so they, we, we were stared at, but then they were in particular because one of my sons has really long hair. And so that was odd because everyone has really cut, shortcut hair. But they were being stared at so much that at one point, mm -hmm. after about four or five days, they couldn't handle it. Mm -hmm. And they decided they weren't going out anymore. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I remember thinking, I wonder if this is what people think, how people feel in the States. Who are people of any color other than plain white? Like, do we stare at them all the time, or do they feel like we are staring at them, or do they feel, you know, I mean, um, invasive is kind of what the boys how they tagged it. Mm -hmm. I feel invaded. Like I feel like my space is invaded mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I'm not the norm. Mm -hmm. And they knew that going into our travels that we were going to be of the minority. And again, like you have said, that was a teeny tiny little piece. Mm -hmm of what we experienced. Mm -hmm. um, we experienced different, you know, we would be waiting for a cab or a couple of times we had to go to a clinic or hospital for shots or, you know, we got sick and we, as much of the, of the um, Spanish that we were speaking, of course there were dialects all over the place, we would translate roughly what was going on and because we were the gringos, we were at the back of the line. Mm -hmm. Like the locals, which I expected. But it was just those little pieces, and again, a very small part right. of what others experience. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you know, t take all of these and then magnify them, mm -hmm. first of all. Second of all, string them out over the course of a lifetime, and then string those lifetimes over the course of generations, right. and that's, that's the experience of the world today mm -hmm. in America. You know, that's the, that's the injustice of racism. Um, I also want to say, you know, like talking about white privilege and being open to the conversation around this is not about creating shame. I mean, I really, like, I really want to say that 
the idea is not, you know, I'm going to beat you over the head with this until you feel so shameful that you do something about it. Like, right. that's not what this is about. It is natural, I think, for those of us with a beating heart <laughs> to, you know, to feel some of that guilt. Um, and I think it's when, when that comes up, you know, so yoga teaches us to be okay with the uncomfortable. Right. Right. Growth happens at the edge of your experience. The edge is where you're resisting, but then there's like a relaxation that can kick in. Mm -hmm. So um, if you sit with it, if you sit with it, exactly. Growth only happens where there's stress in the world, like in nature. Growth only happens where there's stress. Um, evolution happens when there's stress. Um, an animal finds itself in an environment that's not what it's used to. In order to survive, it has to adapt and change. Mm -hmm. That's a stress. That's a stressor. So it's the same thing with people. You know, the only way that we're going to move forward toward anything that resembles racial justice is if white folks are a little uncomfortable for a while. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean like, you know, the violence against them. I don't get, I, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, emotionally uncomfortable. Sit with it. Right. Yes. You know, like maybe, maybe in your heritage, no, you're not the descendant of slave owners. But it doesn't mean that in some way, somehow, you haven't benefited from the structure of racism as it's been institutionalized in America over generations. And for me, sitting with it, with the realization of what we are talking about and, you know, what the small amount that we've unpacked today is very uncomfortable because it makes me emotionally hurt. Yeah. Yeah. To think of all that has happened that we have talked about. And just as it happens today, just because of the color of someone's skin that they were born with, I mean, they can't do anything about. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, and I, I totally agree that we are, we choose our, you know, who we're born to, mm -hmm. and we choose our path before we're even incarnated. But then we forget once we get here mm -hmm. why we're here, and the color of our skin, our gender. I mean, a white male today mm -hmm. is so privileged. Mm -hmm. Whether straight, straight white male, yeah. straight white male, yeah. yes, yeah. Uh, whether he's asked for it or not, right? And I think that there are those that are aware and those that are not aware. And to be not aware is not a shameful thing. Exactly, it's just the unawareness, yeah, of it. Exactly. Um, and having the conversation and becoming aware, I think, is where the shift and the change. Occurs. There's a quote that I really love, um, and I'm looking at it because I haven't memorized it yet, but um, I wanted to share by James Baldwin, who's a writer. Um, amazing, amazing gentleman. Um, what he said of racism is that it's not a racial problem. It's a problem of whether or not you're willing to look at your life and be responsible for it and then begin to change it. It's really that simple, you know? Mm -hmm. We can fight against reality and resist it all we want, you know, and there are micro ways that we do that in our everyday life and there are macro ways that we mm -hmm. do that in our everyday life. We look in the mirror and we say, oh, I don't like those wrinkles. I'm going to go out and get some anti-aging cream or, Botox. you know, right, or what, you know, right. We, we look in the mirror and we say, oh, I've gained a little bit of weight. I need to, you know, re-up my membership in the gym. And all these are great things to do. Like the, the, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's, that's what it is. I'm looking at myself in the mirror. I'm recognizing something that's there. I'm taking responsibility for it, mm -hmm. and then I'm changing it. Mm -hmm. So why shouldn't we do the same with these deeply held, very subconscious mm -hmm. beliefs that we have around racism? Again, you know, like the thoughts 
the thoughts that we have, they come and go. They're like, it's sort of like um, being an antenna and tuning into various frequencies that are just floating around in the air, right. you know? Um, we don't have to choose to hold on to any of those thoughts. We can just let them move through. Again, mm -hmm. that's something that yoga teaches us mm -hmm. is, you know, it's a practice of learning to moderate and mediate the fluctuations that are, that move through our minds. Mm -hmm. And then with mindfulness, choosing which ones we want to hold on to, choosing which ones we want to practice. A belief is simply a practiced thought. So if I believe that I'm superior, it's only because I've practiced that thought and it's been reinforced in my world around me. Right. You know? So what would happen if we were to change that thought? Again, not to bring up shame, but as a white person, what would happen if we were to say, okay, let me just acknowledge that slavery happened and it sucked. <laughs> yeah. And maybe I didn't participate in it personally, but I certainly have benefited from it. Mm -hmm. Even if I don't believe that, what would happen if I practiced that thought? Chances are, if I practiced the thought as a white person that I have benefited from racism, I would begin to see in the world around me instances in which this is true. Yeah, let's talk about that because I was just thinking, yeah. okay, so give me some examples yeah. how we have benefited subconsciously and not even um, in our own, like uh, uh, how I have not intentionally mm -hmm. participated. Okay. So, um, here, here's an example, a friend, um, who is an amazing writer and speaker, Dr. Joy DeGruy. There's a, again, you can Google her and find a video online, uh, where she talks, there's lots of videos, but one in particular in which she talks about cracking the code and what she shared it, what she shares in that video is an instance that she experienced with her, um, her sister. I, I can't remember if it was her sister or sister-in-law. I think it's her sister-in-law. Um, she is African-American and so is her sister-in-law, but her sister-in-law has much fairer skin and they were in line at, you know, some store checking out the checkout counter and her sister bought her, her sister-in-law bought her, bought her things, paid for it, wrote a check, didn't, wasn't asked for ID, wasn't asked for, you know, just like, okay, thanks. Have a nice day. And then Joy goes to purchase her things and she has slightly darker skin, mm -hmm. not much, but slightly darker skin. And now all of a sudden the cashier is like, I'm going to need to see two forms of ID and, you know, holding the check up to the light and, you know, here, let me call my manager over to double check this. And, wow. <laughs> you know, and, and her sister-in-law came back into line and was like, excuse me, you didn't put me through all of this. Why are you putting her through all of that? Right. You know, <laughs> that's an example of how it plays out in everyday life. Yeah. You know, and it's, it seems like a minor incident, but again, when you take something right. like that and you magnify it and you string it out over a lifetime mm -hmm. of experiences like that, at every step of the way, you are reminded that you're different and that you are not in power. And I would be in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Yeah. I mean, just even listening to you yeah. makes my stomach anxious because mm -hmm. I think if I were to have that experience even once, mm -hmm. I would go to the next experience expecting even in the back of my mind, is this going to happen again? Mm -hmm. And what is wrong with me mm -hmm. that you have to do this to me? Yeah. So think about like the psychology of, Oh my God. I am. Yeah. I just like my whole body is like, Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. Another good friend of mine, um, very distinguished gentleman. Um, he, uh, I, I was, we were all part of a weekend conference or meeting or something 
several years ago, and I feel like we were somewhere in South Carolina, but I could be totally wrong about that, and I don't want to badmouth South Carolina because it's a lovely state. <laughs> I, I know we were somewhere in the South. I don't remember if it was Georgia or South Carolina or Florida, one of those. Anyway, um, this was an experience that I had that like opened my eyes to something. Again, it's not something I would have thought of, you know. So we were in, we were sitting in a restaurant, and most of us were um, dressed fairly formally, you know, like maybe khakis and a blazer, you know, something like that. And I was. I was in, uh, you know, nice shirt, nice pants kind of thing. Um, and uh, the server, um, it's a white lady, very clearly Southern, based on her accent, you know, came to the table and was like, is there anything else I can get you all? You know, very sweet, very. Um, and then and then specifically to my colleague, you know, put her hand at the very back of his head. It's the kind of the way that you would do with a child, you know. Put her hand at the very back of his head. I was like, anything else I can get you, sweetie? Now, on the surface... It, you know, this is the Southern hospitality that many people like, you know, tout as, as a wonderful quality mm-hmm. of why it's awesome to travel to the South. It was so triggering for him. I mean, I could just see in his body, like he actually like jolted a little bit and he turned around and very plainly and very calmly was like, don't ever touch me like that again. You know, it was, it was an invasion of his space mm-hmm. in the way that you were expressing that your boys had felt, you know? Mm-hmm. Which again is something, it's like, it's, it's a way in which we are unconscious of the ways we put people in their place. Yes. You know? Yes. I'm going to put you in your place by coming into your space and putting my hand on you. So a very similar, (laughs) similar example, but just with my 21 year old, I was saying something to him and we were kind of having a discussion, but I subconsciously reached out to him and touched his arm on the side Mm -hmm. and he said, mom, Stop it. Mm-hmm. What you're doing is putting me in my place by touching my arm. And I was like, that's not what I was doing. But as soon as he said that, it was almost as if my brain rewound mm-hmm. and then replayed it for me in that instant moment. And I thought, mm-hmm. I was. Mm-hmm. I didn't intend it, but that's what I subconsciously intended to do was put you in your place mm-hmm. and bring you to my side. Yeah. Which is what was going on. Yeah. And so those are scenarios in which, you know, like, I, I don't. In the, in the second example, I don't know that it, it clearly demonstrates uh, uh, an advantage or a privilege, you know, of that of that particular server being a white lady. But in, it, it's the reverse that shows the privilege. Do you know what I mean? It's the disadvantage that shows the advantage. Mm-hmm. Contrast creates clarity. Is something yes. one of my yoga teachers, one of my yoga teachers, likes to say. Contrast creates clarity. Where you can see injustice happening, it makes more clear makes clear what justice needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when dispro- when the, the number of um, deaths uh, at the hand of, you know, police intervention is disproportionate, vastly disproportionate mm-hmm. in terms of white folks and black folks, there's something to mm-hmm. look at there. Mm-hmm. When the number of people incarcerated, you know, so like you think, like you step back and you're like, you know, some people will argue uh, well, they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, or you know, they're it, it. People have shown that you know studies have shown that they're prone to more violence or whatever. I call BS on that right time because it's just nonsense. <laughs> mm-hmm. You put the this two different people, two people of different skin color in the exact same circumstances in the exact same, and it'll play out the same way. You know, it's not about what you look like. It's not about this population makes poorer choices than this population. It's about the systematic way that structural racism has played out over decades, you know, and it's 
that's what makes it hard to undo. So then I think to myself, well, what can I do? You know, I'm just a, you know, I'm just a yoga teacher. Or I'm just a whatever. <laughs> I'm just a business person or I'm just a teacher in a school or I'm just a hairstylist or I'm just a whatever. What we can do is that, is that, is that action of taking response, like looking at our own life, taking responsibility for it and then changing it. It's not about all of a sudden, um, now I got to go find some black friends to, you know, to <laughs> right. invite into my social circle. It's right. not about that either, but it is about like, open your eyes and just watch, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of what I teach in my yoga classes is be aware, really be present in the moment and notice what's happening in your body. Notice what's happening in your home environment. Notice what's happening in your community. Notice what's happening in your town. Notice what's happening in your state. And begin to just sort of unravel for yourself. You know, like it's not about being educated or not educated. It's not about having had experience or no experience. It's not, you know, the reason that people get so up in arms about these issues is that there's a fear that if we acknowledge the value of every human being, then all of a sudden there's less value for me. Mm. Nonsense. Right. Nonsense. Complete nonsense. And so it's, so that's the shift that we need to begin making. It's like there's enough. There's enough of everything for everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> there's enough of everything for everybody. There's enough value for everybody. There's enough validation for everybody. There's enough educational quality for everybody. There's enough money for everybody. There's enough everything for everybody. Really, there is. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> in and, very tangible ways. Yeah. And I think you and I had talked about this in one of our previous conversations about um, the subliminal mm. messages that we receive daily from social media, just in our whole world. And we talked about what happens <clears throat> for me that I have been conditioned to not go down a dark alley because someone of dark skin might come down that alley. Mm-hmm. That's in my mind. It's on TV. It's in movies. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You don't show a white banker coming down right. with a knife going to murder me. <laughs> right. You know? Um, and so I think part of that beginning shift is just to also become aware when you go to, when you go to that thought. Because I think we were sitting in a coffee shop or wherever we were, and somebody opened the door. Well, my initial, you had to come in. And my initial thought, it was a, it was a person that was of color. He, he wasn't white. But I had already checked and recognized and then released the thought that wanted to come in mm-hmm. because of how he was dressed, how he looked. I like, I wanted to size him up and judge him just like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So part of this shift, I think, is just recognizing <clears throat> where that thought starts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and seeing it without the shame and the guilt mm-hmm. and like, oh my God, God what yeah. am I thinking yeah. of just, oh, and letting it go. And it does take practice. Oh, totally. Yeah. Because it doesn't just shut off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it takes years of, because there is a point where you recognize, oh, that happened in a nanosecond mm-hmm. and it's gone versus sitting with all the thoughts that come in. So just beginning that practice of recognizing it without judgment and then letting it go exactly. and then go on. Exactly. Yeah. What a conversation. Yeah. Okay, <clears throat> I just wanted to talk about your faith It's our last topic and how this plays out in your 
um, what is the word I'm looking for? Activism. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that, um, you know, I, I, again, I think about, so we're new parents. We kind of need to stick around to raise these kids. We cannot put ourselves in terribly dangerous situations too often. <laughs> right. But at the same time, I, you know, both my husband and I are very passionate about raising our children with awareness. Mm. And so, um, in light of a lot of the tragedies that happened this past summer, directly following the tragic events in Charlottesville, mm -hmm. for example, there were several um, demonstrations downtown Denver. And we debated back and forth and back and forth. Should we go? Should we not go? If we mm -hmm. went, what kind of signs would we take? What would we do with the kids? Would mm -hmm. we take the kids? Would we not take the kids? And um, I just, I felt in my gut. So my husband and I operate in very different ways in the world. You know, like he is very pragmatic. He's the, if we're buying a car, he's the one that comes with the Excel spreadsheet. And like, these are our, these are our, our, you know, like we have to have these features. These are just, would be nice to have. It has, you know, very like structured. And I'm like, do I love it or not? Does it make me happy to sit in this car or not? <laughs> Much more straightforward. Do it? <laughs> right. You know? So we have a very different way of going about things in the world. And, you know, I just, in this, in the, at this particular moment in time, with our family growing in the way that it's growing, with what we want our life to be about, what our life is about, I felt very strongly we needed to take the kids with us. Mm -hmm. My husband was very afraid. Now, I will, I will say, like, my husband's a full, full foot taller than me, you know, mm -hmm. so he's a, and he's a big guy, so, <laughs> and he's white, so, like, no one's going to mess with him, <laughs> right, you know what I'm saying? Um... And, you know, so I was, and he just had so many fears. I'm like, then nothing's going to happen to the kids. You know, we're going with friends. If we're all, like, huddled around our kids, if we have a game plan, like, if something goes south and people show up with rifles or, like, if something really mm -hmm. dangerous happens, we pull them and we, you know, we go the other way. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had kind of a, a plan, you know, to keep them safe if we needed to. I said, but, you know, like, this, this, this idea of safety that we want to create for them is kind of an illusion, you right. know? The reality is that the schools that they go to, the places where we shop, anything can happen at any time, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And I'm not just talking about, like, somebody's going to come with a gun or whatever, but, like, there's there's emotional and spiritual harm that can happen that, to me, outweighs whatever physical danger, you know, mm -hmm. we might potentially be putting ourselves in going to this demonstration. So we went, and we had the kids made signs. They were really cute signs. I'm totally blanking on what they said now. It was completely... And so was the premise of the demonstration, was it a peaceful demonstration? Yeah, was it, it was just, it was a demonstration okay. to just, like, it was a peaceful demonstration. There was a, there were a group of Baha'is that went from Westminster as a group, and that's, mm -hmm. that's what made me feel confident about going. Right. You know, we just, we, one of the signs we carried said, white, white silence is violence. Mm. The longer we Powerful. stay silent, the more we perpetuate the system as it is. We don't have to, again, we don't have to hit everyone over the head with things, you know? Mm -hmm. And there were things that the crowd were chant that the crowd was chanting that we did not participate in because they felt complete, they, they felt a little politically divisive. Mm. And although we have our own political opinions, like that's not what we're there for. It's okay. not about that. Mm -hmm. It's really about like, there are people in pain and that pain needs to stop, period. Mm -hmm. Like that's all that it's about. <laughs> yeah. There are people in pain and the pain needs to stop. And we want to show up and say that we support that. That's, that's who we are. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we, that we do, uh, show up in community spaces. Uh, we host a monthly gathering in our home that up to now has been, uh, you know, most of the participants have been white folks, which is fine. 
because we feel very strongly that we have an opportunity to educate ourselves so that we can make changes again. Like the problem mm -hmm. of racism isn't a problem for people of color to solve. It's right. <laughs> it's our problem. It's a responsibility that we all have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, constantly checking ourselves. Like, uh, so the discussion that we have is about social justice and, you know, t educating ourselves on what, what, what is white privilege? What is cultural appropriation? How do we talk about what has happened to the Native American populations of our country over generations? How do we begin to reconcile that? What, what should reparations look like if there should be reparations? You know, what is it, how, how do we teach our children to stand up to injustice when they identify it? Mm -hmm. If they see somebody at school being treated a certain way and they recognize that that's not right, what do they do about it? Mm -hmm. You know, these are the kinds of things that we talk about in our, in our discussion group. And like I said, I'd love to see the group get more diverse um, because all of the viewpoints are valuable. But one of the reasons why we decided to have this group discussion and are okay with it sometimes being mostly white folks is because for too long the burden of explaining all of this has fallen on the shoulders mm -hmm. of our friends of color mm -hmm. and they're exhausted and it's not their problem i was just gonna say <laughs> the same thing it's, it's not, not their, their problem, problem. <laughs> so why right. should they be stuck with you know being the spokesperson for all african americans for their pain and or for, for their pain or yeah what you know, we like, have inflicted yeah mm -hmm. yeah so this is something of what we do. It would be the reverse of the reverse of it. I feel would be the white person stomping up and down. Would you please listen to me and look yeah. at what you've done? Yeah. And the other people would be like, with their hands up, you know, you've been yeah. beating the same drum. Yeah. And we can't hear you anymore. Right. So it's our turn because I I feel like that the people of any color other than white almost can't be heard anymore. Because we've, we've just them out. turned it off. Mm -hmm. Like we've been hearing you for so long. And yeah. I don't mean that as in a crass way. It's, no. I feel like it is what it is. And it's now our turn. Again, it's that discomfort, you know. It's, um, well, and just think about, you know, like if you, like the stereotype of the quote unquote angry black woman, you know, like how often has that been played out in media around mm -hmm. us? How mm -hmm. often have we interacted with that kind of stereotype from somebody? Oh, you're, you know, and, a, there's an aspect of that that's just about gender inequality, and B, there's, a, you know, like, the hysterical woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and B, like, there's an aspect of that that is completely about racism and, mm -hmm. and stifling a voice, you know, silencing silencing a voice that needs to be heard. Out of so, fear. Yeah. Stifling out of fear. Exactly. So how can we, how can we <clears throat> show up in spaces where we're talking about these things and just listen? Mm -hmm. How can we do that, you know? How can mm -hmm. we show up and just be like, I... I am not going to, you know, I might get emotional and I might have like really big feelings and that's okay. Like the space that we create in our own discussion groups, we talk about that. You might have some really big feelings. You might start crying. You might feel emotional. That's okay. Nobody's here to like take care of you for that. So take care of yourself. Right. You know, and, um, and know that it might get loud and know that a couple of curse words might come out and know that there's an anger and a pain that goes so deep in the hearts of souls that has to be expressed, that has to find its way to the light of day, that it might feel uncomfortable. And that's a good thing, because it means you're doing something right. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think this is probably the third or fourth time I've gotten emotional as you talk. <laughs> yeah. Just because it is at such a painful place. When, for me, when I internalize it and just even go to the place where you want me to be and thinking of it. 
it is painful and it would be very easy to shut it off and not think about it. But that's not what we want to do. It's to talk about it and to feel. And again, I will never, never feel the extent and the magnitude of what someone else has felt their entire life. Right. I won't pretend that I ever will. But just the imagination of feeling what they have felt and uncovering the layers that we have just put on top of each other to cover it all up. Yeah. <clears throat> there are two resources I'd love to just kind of share um, for your listeners yes. to check out online if they would like more information to um, scholarly papers that are really amazing. Um, two, two women have done a great amount of work in this field. One is called um, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Backpack, and it's something that's written by Peggy McIntosh, so you can Google that and look that up. And the other is called White Fragility, and that's written by Robin D'Angelo. And they're both amazing papers that just, you know, that shed light on what we're talking about. Um, in Unpacking the Invisible Backpack, what I really love about that is she has, um, she provides a list, um, conditions which she thinks um, attack somewhat more to skin color privilege than, than, than to class, religion, ethnic status, or geographical location. So she says, um, like, these, these conditions, if you can answer one way or the other, then it's a clear, like, understanding for you of whether you're benefiting from white privilege or not. Mm -hmm. And so, for example... Um, um, one of the things she says, I can, I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. Yes. Right. I can be pretty sure that my neighbors in such a location will be neutral or pleasant to me. Yes. Right. <laughs> I can turn on the television or open the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. 100%. Yeah. So the, then it's a much longer list. These are just a few examples of, mm -hmm. you know, ways in which privilege plays out. If you can operate in a space, so think about this in terms of LGBTQ issues, think mm -hmm. about this in terms of gender inequality, think about this in terms of racism, think about this in terms of class issues, mm -hmm. think about this in terms of um, how poverty affects people, homelessness, I mean, any social issue you can think of. Mm -hmm. If you can basically move through life relatively effortlessly and feel a sense of belonging like you see yourself reflected in the world around you and your values represented there, then you are benefiting from privilege. That's sort of like a bottom line kind of thing, you know? Mm. And it seems like, well, that's just living, right? That's, that's what life should be like for us, right? America was founded on the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is it for everybody? Right. Does everybody participate in that? Because aren't we the melting pot, right? Right. Where until up until a year or two ago, we invited everyone to our country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's that. <laughs> and we invite them to our country, but then are very discerning on how we treat them. Mm. Yeah, so I encourage reading those two um, for anyone wanting to dig a little deeper to sort of have that awareness mm -hmm. in your own life. And to know that, you know, this is sort of like uh, Alice in Wonderland. Like once you, you know, once you go down the rabbit hole, you really can't walk it back. Mm -hmm. You, once you develop the awareness, uh, it's hard not to see it. Mm -hmm. And for those of us that are tenderhearted, it might cause some pain. 
and you know to just know that that's okay that pain passes it's not a constant state mm-hmm. um, just like joy it comes and goes and you're not alone you know like that's sort of the bottom line in all of this you're not alone and the more of us that can rip off the veils that shut us out from seeing this reality the more powerful the change that we'll actually begin to see in the world around us and i feel like this change in this the conversation that we are just having today um it feels like we are not the only ones having this conversation which is good and it feels like the pendulum will shift before it will become neutral again in the middle where it needs to be because we're so out of balance right now it feels like the conversations are happening and starting and the thought process is there but the pendulum might shift opposite because I just want to go out and embrace everyone right now mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's shocking to mm-hmm. the other person mm-hmm. because that person has been up until now their entire lives yeah. on the other side right they're like no yeah this is normal yeah right <laughs> Yeah. And I wouldn't be received with open arms mm-hmm. because there would be so much question. There could even be fear on the other side. So it feels like the pendulum has to shift mm-hmm. to the opposite direction before we can all come back and find that balance of where we can be as a society and, and as a race without all that fear, without all the layers mm-hmm. that we've talked about. Mm. Mm, I love this conversation. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, as uncomfortable as I have felt, I have also felt um, so much more knowledge um, and gratitude for your wisdom mm. and your openness. I'm happy to share again. You know, I, I'm not an expert. I'm not. Um, I just, it's something that I. I want us to start to create the kind of world we want to live mm-hmm. in. One where hum- every human life is valued. Mm-hmm. Every human life is valued. And that's, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I feel like that's just a fundamental right that every human being has. Right? Every human it sounds silly. To be valued. Right. <laughs> right. And it sounds like it's almost something that we shouldn't even have to consider. But we're not there. But we're not there. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to my producer, Margaret Spencer. You can learn more at taradavis.me. Catch this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Any information we talked about today will be in our show notes. And while you're listening, be sure to click on the subscribe button so you'll always have the latest episode ready to go. I'll see you right here next week.